I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. Concrete is one of the most important materials that makes up our modern world. It's the second most used material in the world right behind water. It's the foundation for all of our bridges, buildings, homes, and roads. Some of the world's most impressive structures owe their existence to concrete. Cement is a key ingredient in concrete and acts as the glue that binds together the water and aggregate to make cement. Globally, we produced over 4 billion tons of cement in 2021, and demand is expected to grow as new construction continues around the globe. But for each ton of cement produced, we emit a ton of carbon in the process due to the fossil fuel-powered heat and reactions needed to produce it. Altogether, the cement industry accounts for 8% of global carbon emissions. To build our net zero future, we'll need even more concrete for new and existing infrastructure. But we'll also need to clean up cement production along the way to prevent ever-increasing emissions. And that's what this month's What It Takes guest, Sublime Systems CEO and co-founder, Leah Ellis, is doing. The problem of, you know, needing cement, it's not something that we can simply trim back on. It, it's its a necessity. And, and you know, the way we've been doing it for millennia is, is by burning burning fuels. And with all of the advancement in science and technology, there, there is a better way. So recent advances in electrochemistry and recent, you know, a proliferation of, of uh, renewable electricity. So we finally have the tools to go about it a different way. Leah and her colleagues at Sublime Systems are decarbonizing the cement industry by creating a process that produces cement with electricity, removing fossil fuels from cement production. For centuries, making cement required producing super hot temperatures in an enclosed space. And for the last 150 years, Portland cement, the form of cement used around the world, involves heating minerals together in a rotating kiln at over 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. The ordinary process uses uh, a fossil-fueled kiln to break down these minerals and, and break the, the bonds that cause the inert minerals that you find in nature and, and makes them cementitiously active so that they react with water to form a gel and harden and, and make cement. Cement's carbon problem is twofold. First, we release carbon while burning the natural gas, coal, and other fossil fuels needed to reach 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And second, when broken down, those same minerals used to make cement release CO2 as a byproduct. And with global cement demand expected to increase by 45% by 2050, maintaining the status quo means hurting our chances at a net zero future. The other half of the problem is that we need cement so much between now and 2050. Not only is it a very resilient building material if we're going to be adapt to a changing climate, but also the world's population is growing and becoming more urban. So it's expected that the floor space on Earth will double between now and, and 2060. So we have to keep building, but we have to build with low carbon cement. And that's the problem that Sublime is here to solve. Sublime has created an electrochemical cell that uses electricity instead of heat to cause the chemical reaction between minerals to make cement. That reaction between minerals happens at ambient temperatures instead of the super hot environment of a fossil fuel powered kiln. 
By removing the heat, Sublime's process removes up to 90% of emissions from cement production. So um, we use an electrochemical process to break down the minerals electrochemically instead of thermally at very high temperature. And that makes a, a form fit function replacement for today's Portland cement that can be a drop in replacement and um, be that industry accepted concrete that we've been using for millennia. And swapping out combustion for electricity lets Sublime act as a valuable grid resource that can be powered by renewables and smooth the grid during off-peak hours. Leia believes getting Sublime's product to price parity with Portland cement would be a massive step towards decarbonizing an industry that, if it were a country, would be the third largest emitter only after the U.S. and China. My mission is to have a swift and massive impact on global CO2 emissions so that we can mitigate the worst of climate change. I spoke with Leia about developing the science behind low-carbon cement. We also talked about the importance of getting experience in industry while she was still an academic, and Sublime's ultimate goal of launching a plant capable of producing a million tons of cement a year. We started with Leia's childhood in Nova Scotia, Canada, where her parents encouraged her and her two sisters to have a rich intellectual life from an early age. Leia, starting with your early life, you were born in Jerusalem, but then moved to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Canada when you were four and grew up with your mom and dad and two sisters. I learned that your dad was a rabbi and a religious scholar and your mom was a teacher before becoming a full-time parent. Tell me more about your parents and how they shaped you. Yeah, my parents are are delightful human beings. They're they're extremely wholesome. They're they have rich intellectual lives. So my dad is a scholar, my mom um, you know, she's a bit of an artist and a free spirit and you know, we we had a, a bit of a different life, you know, being being immigrants to Canada at, at that time. It was it was a place without a lot of diversity. Um, we grew up without television, which made it <laughs> also a little bit harder to to relate to kids at school and to keep up with the latest. But you know, our home life was was very happy. My sisters and I were very imaginative. You know, learning was a an extracurricular activity that we all enjoyed and. It was a foundation for who I am as an adult, for sure. And your mom is South African, is that right? She is, yes. Yeah. And what do you remember about visiting family in South Africa when you did? Yeah, I visited South Africa a number of times, but when some of my earliest memories when I'm young and I remember there was a drought, um, you know, there continues to be droughts in South Africa and they they had to be very careful with with water use and, you know, limiting your showers and your toilet flushes and all that. And that, I think, is the first time I became conscious as a very young child about conservation and preservation and um, just the effects that humans have on their surroundings and being being stewards of of the natural resources. What were you like in high school? And did you have a sense of what you wanted to do in college when you were in high school? <laughs> it was probably pretty awkward in high school, but I think everybody's <laughs> awkward in high school, whether they know it or Very not. <laughs> um, but I did not know what I wanted to do. And, and it's tough because I like everything. And so I switched from, you know, I loved science. I loved chemistry in particular. I also loved everything. So I've, I found it very hard to pick a major and I switched between, I think I went from an arts major to a science major to an arts major. And then, you know, by the end of the first year, it was just solidly a science major. Like this is, this is it. Like all the philosophy and history and English, it was 
all in the past, it it felt kind of dead and I didn't enjoy learning it in school because frankly, it was much more fun just learning it on my own. <laughs> and chemistry and, and physics and math were things that were hard. And I felt like I was getting my money's worth out of school and I was working my way through college. So that was really important to me. Um, and it was hard and it was creative and it was future forward. And I, I loved that. So you went to Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, and you mentioned working through school. Um, where did you work, and uh, and why did you choose Dal as the university uh, of your choice? Dalhousie was the university just ten minutes from my parents' house. So uh, unlike the states, I think Canadians obsess less about where they go to school. So I only applied to one school, only got into one school. Um, and yeah, that allowed me to to live with my parents while working working through college. And I worked at a local organic food store, um, stocking shelves and being a cashier. And then in academia, you mentioned switching back between art and then science and back and forth again and, and landing in science. Even in science, it sounds like at some point you became kind of disillusioned with academia before finding your passion, which led to a master's and then a PhD in chemistry. Why did you feel that disillusionment and then what changed? Yeah, I have to admit um, that I wasn't the strongest student. Probably I could have been if if I tried, but <laughs> frankly, I didn't try um, too much. And I, I feel very badly about that. And I, I wish I honestly did try, try harder, but it just didn't capture my attention um, that much. So I'd say a lot of it was uninspired. A lot of it was learning by rote. I'm sure many listeners who've taken organic chemistry might feel the same. So I didn't, I didn't really get it. I didn't struggle to pass, but I wasn't struggling to excel. And it was when I did an honors project and I met the the man that became my my master's supervisor. And he's a brilliant inventor, and we were working on sodium ion batteries. So we were thinking ahead to the the lithium shortage that, of course, we all know of now. Is you know everything electrifies, and we were trying to make a sodium ion battery. And all of a sudden, it clicked. And everything I learned in school, now that I saw how it was to be applied and how it could be used, everything snapped into place. And learning became a joy again. And you know, it's invention and creating things, it's a team sport. It's not just learning from a book and passing a test. And that's when I really started to thrive and I really enjoyed my master's and I got it done very quickly and published great papers. And yeah, I was really inspired by it, by the professor that I was working with and my colleagues in the lab. And then you went on to do a PhD and you got to collaborate with Tesla and 3M to improve their battery chemistry. How did that work come about and what did you learn? Yeah, I, it came about, I think, because Dalhousie is is a special university. It doesn't, you know, places like MIT and Harvard, they have a, a technology licensing program and they sort of gatekeep you know, access to the students and the research, but Dalhousie's not like that. So they allowed the professors to work closely with industry if they were sponsored by industry. So my master's was funded by 3M. All of our IP went to them. And my PhD was first funded by 3M. And then we switched to working with Tesla. So they were doing R&D in advance of the, their Gigafactory when they decided to make their own cell chemistry. So that was just so exciting and a really special PhD program where you're you're working on something that could have real-world impact and you're you're solving for problems and you're focused on patent applications, less so than papers, although definitely have enough of those under my belt as well. So 
I really enjoyed that. And I think it was a privilege. And I, I do wish more universities were set up that way. Some people are satisfied in academia their entire lives and careers. What do you think made you not satisfied with a kind of academic or theoretical only path and and feel so much passion for these real world applications that you started to find? Yeah, great question. I, I do think academia is broken a little bit because many professors have only known academia and they haven't known industry. And I'd say my master supervisor, my PhD supervisor had worked in industry before coming back to academia. And I think that's so important for giving an inspiring and useful education. So while I was open to becoming a professor and I do would like one day to pay it forward and to become a teacher, you know, but it didn't have that real world impact. And I also wanted to leave and do something else before ultimately coming back. So, um, yeah, doors still open to academia. I don't think that really closes. After your PhD, you received funding via a fellowship from the Canadian government to do whatever research you wanted anywhere in the world. And you decided to do a postdoc at MIT, where you worked with Professor Yetmin Chang, who's a famous scientist and entrepreneur who has spun out seven companies, including Form Energy, led by Matteo Jaramillo, who we've had on the show. And in one of your first meetings with Met, he asked you this question that changed your life. What did he ask you? Yeah, my first in-person meeting with Yet, he was asked me if I was bored of batteries. And that question, I really hesitated to answer because he's a famous battery scientist. I mean, that's why I came to MIT's. We were both battery scientists and I had written a proposal that would have advanced, you know, electrolyte chemistry, but frankly, I was bored of batteries. <laughs> so I didn't want to in- insult this guy, but um, yeah, I do think that batteries have come a long way, but the right now lithium ion batteries are being advanced by making the separators thinner and the cans a little bit bigger. And it seems like a lot of the improvements have been squeezed. And that's not to say that there aren't any more, but I think there's little room for creativity and just like big impact um, with minimal effort. Right. So, so yeah, I told yet, you know, I, I could do something other than batteries. And that's when he, he brought up cement. Tell me more about that. When he brought it up, what was your first thought? Uh, well, I knew that cement was a really big lever for decarbonization. So I knew about the problem. He had a really great idea for how to approach it. So he's, um, you know, tenured prof at, at MIT. He's involved with a bunch of, you know, innovation circles. And he he noticed, you know, these trends of renewable energy becoming increasingly abundant, increasingly cheap, especially if it's intermittent. Um, and then also because, you know, The energy sector is about 30% of global emissions. And if that has a clear path to zero, there's now going to be focus on the next biggest chunks of emissions, so cement and steel. So his idea was how might we use low-cost, intermittent, renewable energy and use it to make cement, which was in that year, number one CO2 emitter in industry. Although I do know that cement and steel are neck and neck. So some sometimes here's this one and some of the other, but that year was cement. Um, so that was the tagline that we started to work backwards from uh, starting in 2018. Hmm. And when you heard the idea, did you think, this is great, we're going to start a company? Um, I did not think that it would end in a company, <laughs> but I did think, you know, that's that's great. <laughs> um, I would say that it is a very bold idea. 
um, it's a very top-down idea. And it was an adjustment for me because the work I'd been doing on batteries was bottom-up. It was always pushing the edges of the known. And this was a very, very different type of creativity and invention. And it was a little bit scary, but I was going to play along and try my best and try and figure it out. (laughs) So I continue to do that. And tell me about your work with yet during the postdoc and how that became the the foundation for Sublime Systems. You know, I didn't know much about cement and how it was different for concrete. So I, you know, started reading on Wikipedia and then getting into textbooks about cement and then journal articles. And I was working with an, another PhD student, Andres. And so we found uh, a, a way that to make, to you know, make that tagline into reality, that electrochemical cements. We found an electrochemical cell and we developed it, did a scientific proof of concept in the lab and published that. And as that was going through the review process, we started doing techno-economic modeling. Um, you know, I like to say that the techno-economic model started as a sundial and it it's, continues to evolve into a, a pendulum clock and a, a, a Swiss watch and then ultimately an atomic clock. Um, So we started that and also started to make connections in the cement world. So knowing that we are electrochemists, and that's part of our strength is that we can really think outside the box, but we also can't be naive or come charging in like shining white knights from MIT into a very old and established and very sophisticated industry. So started building those connections, attending those conferences and learning. Mm. And at what point in that process did you realize that there was enough there that this could be a company, both from a, a climate mitigation standpoint in terms of the, you know, 2.8 gigatons of annual CO2 emissions, but then also the fact that, you know, there are 4 billion tons of cement used every year at $150 a ton, you know, with that information and everything else you had done thus far, was there a moment at which you said, okay, we're, we're going to do this? I take very little credit for the spin-out. So, of course, I was doing the work, but it, it's my co-founder, Yet Ming Chang, who's, of course, spun out six startups before Sublime. And I think he's the one that recognized, like, this is the time to to kick this fledgling idea out of the nest. And I, I don't think I would have been bold enough or wise enough to, to make that call myself because I felt there was still a lot of work to be done and taking on, you know, our first check of $700,000, it felt like a really big deal. <laughs> and, and and so he he had that pattern recognition to know that that we were ready. And I was, I was all in. <laughs> I love it. Um, when did you get that first check of 700K and where did it come from? That was March 2020, uh, which is a month that, of course, we all remember. So Sublime spun out on (laughs) on Pi Day 2020, and that first $700,000 check came from Prime Impact Fund, which is philanthropic venture capital for clean technologies that could have very big climate impact. So they take big risk on big impact technologies, and they were fantastic first investors. Hmm. And so you sold them on the idea that your technology at Sublime Systems completely removes the heat needed to create cement and thus removing 90% of emissions that come from burning fossil fuels during production. And you mentioned using electrochemistry. You mentioned using electrochemistry to combine materials needed to make cement at room temperature instead. Tell me about developing the technology, you know, both initially in the postdoc, but then as you decided to to start the company and you got this initial capital, um, how did you go about developing the tech? 
and where did you do it? Yeah, well, um, we, we went about developing the tech with a focus on scale. So knowing that cement is the most biggest industry by mass in the world, we knew that we very quickly had to go from you know, a gram, which is what we were making at MIT, to more substantial amounts and being able to do it continuously and to test that product. It's, it's called a, it was a very stoic industry. You know, they're not, they haven't changed very quickly. And it's because of what they do is at such a large scale. And it's very hard to believe something unless it can be at that scale where it's relevant. So our focus has always been on scale. So the first year we focused on getting from a gram to a kilogram continuously, removing some of those those risks and those scale-up blockages and then moving from a kilogram to 10 kilograms continuously and now have built our 100 ton per year pilot plant, which we just turned on in, in December. So yeah, just super focused on on maximizing that integral of cement produced over time. Mm. And tell me about how does the technology actually work? Great question. So, um, like I said, the, the, in, there's if you go in nature and you find a calcium-bearing rock, it's, it's inert. It, it won't react with water to make cement. And then you heat it up. It breaks down. So in a kiln, that bond between the calcium and the CO2 is broken. And CO2 escapes as a gas. The calcium is then reactive because that inert bond has been broken. So it can react with silicates and make a, make a cement. Um, Sublime breaks that uh, bond with between calcium and CO2 or calcium and silica um, using an electrochemically generated acid. So it's based on a water splitting reactor where one electrode produces an acid, the second electrode produces a base, and at the first electrode, the calcium is dissolved, um, and then that ion migrates to the second electrode and precipitates in a base. So I'm delighted to say that I could confidently explain that to to a high school student because like the chemistry <laughs> is quite simple just dissolving calcium and then very common ph swing and scaling reaction just like scaling calcium um, from hard waters you know precipitating calcium from solution and so once you have that reactive calcium um, you can mix that with with silicates just the way the romans do did um, and then produce a cement that that gels and hardens and forms that same durable cement that we've been using for millennia. And you've described cement as the glue that goes into concrete, and concrete is what has the rocks, and that's the difference between cement and concrete, or at least my very basic understanding. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So cement is is rock glue. So it's the powder that that gels and then hardens and holds all, all the aggregates and the sand in place to make concrete. Mm-hmm. And because you don't need to heat up a kiln to 1500 degrees, you are able to power your electrochemical cell using intermittent renewables. Is that right? That's right. So it is an ambient temperature process. And although we we don't want to turn it on and off, it is very squishy load where there's a range of current densities that we can use. So when energy is abundant, we can ramp up the voltage, increase the current, um, run it in a way that would normally be inefficient, but is actually cost efficient if if energy is abundant and cheap. And then when electricity is is expensive and scarce, we can dial it back down and run it in a very efficient way. And because the cement making process is so large, it's a very large and squishy load. So we can be very responsive and reactive to, to changing situations on the grid. 
So in January of 2021, so a little less than a year after that initial capital from Prime Coalition, you raised a $5 million seed round. Who participated in that round and what did the seed round enable you to do? That was led by by Katie Ray at the engine. So at that point, we had gone from a gram to a kilogram and, you know, we could produce this stuff continuously. So we raised that $5 million to start building out our engineering team and to get the, the pilot plan started. So, um, you know, that's when we added engineering to our, our core group of scientists. Nice. And yeah, who were those first hires? And looking back, were those the right hires? Absolutely the best hires. So <laughs> employee number one is is VP of R&D, Jesse Bank. And it's it's an extreme privilege to work with Jesse. And Jesse was actually followed by two other scientists from his previous job. So they also think that he's the best and they followed him as well. Um, and, you know, of course, I could name off everyone in the company in the order that they hired. They're, they're my chosen family. But yeah, so that was the the core scientific team. And then um, Mike Corbett was, was hired following our seed round. And he built, again, like a really stellar team of process engineers that built our pilot plant in record time, despite all the supply chain shortages that we had following the pandemic. Coming up, Leia recalls the challenges of founding a company right at the start of the pandemic. But first, What It Takes is brought to you by Shell Ventures. Are you ready to accelerate the energy transition? With a dedicated $1.4 billion climate tech fund, Shell Ventures is partnering with innovative companies to build a low-carbon energy future. From renewable energy solutions to next-gen mobility and carbon abatement and removal, their portfolio of investments includes some of the most promising companies at the forefront of the energy transition. Portfolio companies like Flare, who are reducing homeowners' heating and cooling expenses and emissions, like Ample, who are solving how fleets get electricity in cities, and like Palmetto, who have built a clean energy marketplace. Shell Ventures is more than capital. They specialize in unlocking deployment opportunities both inside and outside of Shell to help their portfolio companies scale, access customers, and commercialize their solutions. Visit shell.com forward slash ventures to learn more about how they can help your company reach the next level of growth. You started the company literally the month of the lockdown. What was it like starting the company in that first year or two during COVID? Well, a lot of work from home, of lots of very, very long days at the laptop. And, you know, I used to be quite fit before the pandemic and being so sedentary and you know, your Apple Watch being like, get up, stand, move, breathe. And you're like, no. <laughs> so it's very, very all-consuming, but I, I enjoyed it. And I would say that time time really flew and... um. I, I got to know Jesse very well, and I think it didn't really slow us down, I don't think. I think, you know, humans are very adaptive, and I think we adapted well to the pandemic, and we adapted well to being in person. So it wasn't, mm. didn't really get in my way, I don't think. Mm -hmm. At that time, did you have a sense of who the first customers would be? Sublime has so many customers, right? I think everyone, everyone is their customer, even just people on the street. But, you know, there's... There's the concrete producers whom we sell cement to, but we also think of Sublime's technology that we're building as a product as well. Our first business model, the one that we're operating under the assumption of today, is that we're going to make cement and sell it to concrete producers because we need to make sure that there's that product market fit and the market will accept our product. 
But ultimately, in the spirit of having a swift and massive uh, impact, we do want to deploy our technology as quickly as possible. And we're technologists. We are a technology company. The cement industry is not a technological, well, I mean, I don't mean to say they're technologically advanced, but they're, what they understand very well is not innovation, it's logistics and supply chain. And these things have to be made in large quantities reliably, and it has to run on time. And so much of cement's economics is based on siting, um, you know, minimizing transportation costs. And so I do think we would gain so much by by partnering with existing players so that we can take what we do well and merge it with what they do very well and then go on together and and do something that can have a really large impact for hundreds of years to come. So you mentioned Sublime currently has one pilot plant that's producing 100 tons of cement a year located in Somerville in Greentown Labs. If I was there with you, what would I see and what's actually happening? Yeah, it's a hive of activity. So you'd see a lot of people with lab coats and safety glasses working. It it looks like a chemical plant. So you've got pumps and filters and, you know, we put a lot of powder through our machine, our, our system. So there's um, big pallets of of materials that we're putting through, and you'll see fluffy white lime coming out the other side. So the calcium that we extract from our minerals is pure white. So it comes out looking a bit like marshmallows. And in fact, we did have a visitor go through our lab wanted to to taste it. <laughs> um, it doesn't. No, I wouldn't recommend that. But it does look like marshmallows. <laughs> You're working on going from a pilot site to a demonstration site in the Northeast and want it up and operating by the end of 2025. How much cement will the demonstration site produce once it is up and running? Yeah, the demonstration scale plant will likely be on the order of thirty to 40,000 tons per year. So demonstration scale, the point of that is to make um, this a small version of the industrially relevant plant, which is a million ton per year cement plant. So you want to build it as small as possible, but still using the industrially relevant um, pieces of equipment so that you can properly de-risk that scale jump um, to that commercially viable size. So yeah, 30,000 tons per year is, is about right for us. And then what are you thinking about as you go from the goals of the demonstration site to the much bigger goal of a million tons per year by 2027. Yeah, the the goal of the demonstration scale plant is to make sure that it runs according to the model. And so just de-risking that project finance when you go to that, that million ton per year plant. So um, yeah, that's the goal is to to get <laughs> a sub-industrial version of our process up and running. So at that scale, you you can't compete on cost, um, but you can validate that the system works. And do you, to that point, do you think it'll take until 2027 to get to that industry standard of $150 a ton? Is that the goal? Yes, that's that's the goal. So, you know, this year we're we're working on the pilot, getting plans for the demo. Next year, 2024, starting to build the demo, 2025 construction, commissioning, 2026, doing the same for the 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 commercial scale. So planning, getting the engineering package, the site, 2027 is is the soonest we could begin operating a million ton per year plan. Hmm. Has the tech development gone to plan thus far? Or have there been big pivots, changes, you know, barriers that you didn't anticipate? What does that look like? Oof. You know, 
<laughs> I think every day brings new surprises. <laughs> so some days things are go surprisingly well. It's like, wow, we didn't think that was going to be so easy or even better than we expected. And sometimes it's like, oops, like we're, we're about three months you know, later than we thought we were. And so that's the daily waltz of, of life in a startup. But I would say things have gone, gone according to plan. And, and, and you know, I'm, I keep waiting for someone to tell me this isn't going to work. <laughs> but every day, I think it, it continues to work. And I think more people get bought in. And, you know, with every additional employee that we bring on, like really smart people, you know, just working through the problems, they just get increased confidence day by day that this is this is the right thing to do. This is the right way to solve the problem. Mm. You mentioned confidence, and I'm thinking back to when yet you know had this idea that you bought into, and you said you know I probably wouldn't have done it on my own if he hadn't recognized the opportunity given the other companies that he's spun out. If someone listening to this is in that position that you were in, and they're excited about something. But they're telling themselves, like, who am I to start this? You know, I, I haven't started a company or I haven't spent time in industry. What would you say to them? Oh, you've, you've got to do it. So this is, innovation is a team sport. Um, and I, I like to use the, the old story of Stone Soup when talking about Yet. So Yet's like a pure visionary. He's really got uh, a, a skill for it. And it is a, a rare skill. So, you know, the story of Stone Soup goes, if your readers don't know, you know, a beggar comes to town and he's hungry, but he only has a rock in his pocket. So he goes to the town square and he announces to the villagers that he can make soup out of a stone. And they're like, no, you're crazy. But he's very charismatic and charming and convincing. So people bring him a pot and some water and some coals and he starts to stir and stir and he's got people's attention and he's being funny and charismatic and all that. And they're like, well, why is it taking so long? And he's like, well, it would go a little bit faster if someone brought me some onions and then they're stirring and it's like, okay, what does it need now? It's carrots and celery. And so people bring all this stuff and they make they do end up making a soup out of stone, but it really takes participation from everybody. You know, that's a really apt metaphor for, you know, how Sublime started with this idea that that sounded crazy. I mean, electrochemistry and cement are two disciplines that never cross-pollinated uh, significantly. And, you know, I, I'd say I'm very proud of putting in the first onions and carrots, but so many people <laughs> continue to add onions and carrots, including our, our investors, of course. And I do think that there will be a very hearty soup at the end of the day for the people who've participated. I love that. You mentioned fundraising, and it's been almost three years since you started Sublime. And in January of this year, in 2023, you raised a $40 million Series A, which brings total capital raised to about $50 million, which includes two RPE grants. Uh, tell me about raising the A, who participated, and what was it like raising the A compared to raising the seed? Yeah, Um our Series A was led by by lower carbon capital, um, also very fantastic investors, fantastic people that I feel privileged to to work with. So they had participated in earlier rounds and they liked what they saw, so they <laughs> dive in, dived in and dove in and led our Series A. And I have to say, it was uh, you know it's a lot more work raising forty million <laughs> than it is raising raising five, and I imagine raising a B is going to be a whole different game. Um, 
but I'd say it was tough mostly because, you know, we were, we were reacting to a change in a macroeconomic environment. So wanted to get, get ahead of that. So we were working very quickly. It did require long hours and it, it was challenging to run a tight process since we were fundraising in the summer. And so that is something I would not recommend <laughs> to your listeners. You know, I, I know the conventional wisdom is to, to do it in that fall sprint or in the summer sprint and, you know, it, venture capitalists go on vacation in the summer. And so it, it is different to keep everyone in a tight process through July and August. Mm-hmm. And any advice specifically to founders who are women or underrepresented people of color or people who investors might not be as used to seeing, especially in the kind of spaces that we're in? Yeah. Um, you know, there, I do think there's bias uh, against women in, in venture capitalists. And I can't say I've experienced it directly, but sometimes you can tell people are making assumptions about you and you, you're guessing yourself like, you know, is that person treating me that way or just assuming that, you know, I'm not going to make it? Is it because they don't believe in what I'm doing or is it because I'm a woman? And I would say my advice to people is like, if you get that feeling where just someone's not vibing with you, just just don't work with them. <laughs> like put yourself in a position where you can run a competitive process when you're fundraising so that you can be choosy and just avoid people that that put you down because really like your your team is everything and they have to feed you positivity and they have to be supportive and they can't be second guessing you you have to be all in so yeah i'm totally delighted by the investors i have around the table well said um what is the recent series a enabling you to do in terms of building your team and the further developments on the technology yeah, this 40 million Series A is all about going big. So increasing our scale and just pumping pumping cement out of our pilot, but not only turning the crank on the pilot. So we can make 100 or even 250 tons of cement per year, but we're not turning the crank on that 24-7. So we're both, but we are producing large volumes. That's one goal. The second goal is to optimize the pilot um, and get it in perfect working order so that we can design that demo plan and li- hop over to the next lily pad as, as soon as possible. So um, that's that's the goal of this Series A is launch the product, you know, deploy tons or two of c- cement and then get on to the next level of scale. Love it. In terms of the team and the product and potential customers, where is Sublime Systems today? Yeah, so... You know, we have an idea of our product. We've validated it internally, externally. We're we're just um, gearing up the pilot, and so getting on spec material out of the pilot and into the hands of customers is uh, is the goal for for the next few months. Said it out loud on on a recording, so now I'm accountable <laughs> to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed in August of last year in 2022, included $6 billion towards defining and promoting the use of low-carbon concrete, um, of which cement is one of the main ingredients. What kind of impact will the Inflation Reduction Act have on the decarbonization of concrete, and will it have a specific impact on sublime systems? Yeah, Inflation Reduction Act was huge in so many ways. So there were goodies for low-carbon concrete to pay the green premium for low-carbon building materials. Um, that was in there. But, you know, largely there was that 
Office of Clean Energy demonstration. So $6 billion to build demo plants like the one I was describing. So sub-industrial plants that could be a significant value of death to put so much money into something that's not designed for for profit. It is just a stepping stone. So having a 50% cost share for that is absolutely catalytic and lets other people come in and, and put in that other half. Also, I'm really excited by all the um, decarbonization of, of electricity. So all of the incentives for for solar and wind. And, you know, that's the first thing that de- we have to decarbonize. And Sublime, just like a, an electric car, it's only going to be as green as the electricity that you put in it. So today there's, there's plenty of sites we have to choose from with low carbon electricity, but we can't just, you know, plug it in anywhere. Um, we have to be careful with siting, but I'm I'm very energized to see how quickly we may achieve net zero in my lifetime. I'm really excited. And I think it's totally catalytic, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you reflect on having built the company for the past three years, um, how many people are on the team today? And what have you learned about hiring since you started building the team? Yeah, uh, there are about 50 people on the team today. Um and hiring is so important. I think that's my only job. And I know this is going to sound very cliche, but, you know, hire people that are better and smarter than you. And it's, I think that just, you know, it's just a, a real pleasure to come to work. Um, and so it's it's something that, you know, and I've, I've also learned to, to go with your gut. And, you know, you can hire with your head and then you can hire with your heart. And I think you first you have to, do it with your head. You have to have a scorecard. You can't, you know, be biased. But at the end of the day, it really has to feel like it clicks. Absolutely. If you could go back in time three years ago to when you and Matt were sitting down and he was telling you about this cement idea, uh, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, um, you know, a lot of things that I learned had to be learned the hard way. But I don't know if there's any any advice if I had to go and see myself from three years ago probably just chuckle at myself I don't know (laughs) I don't know if there's anything I could have said that would have made it better (laughs) Um, what has been the single worst day at Sublime Systems oh um yeah that I'd say like a hard day was like the the day that SVB you know I was at Sarah Week and I was mm-hmm. I had a panel and I was being interviewed and I was going on stage and I had to open another bank account and get my co-founder to do the paperwork and you know my Apple Watch is like buzzing off my <laughs> wrist while I'm while I'm pitching and um you know that was a, that was a hectic day yeah I was there too. And it was really <laughs> surreal. And same thing. It's like being on a panel and trying to talk about things like they're normal. And meanwhile, you know, you don't know what's going on with yes. your cash. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what has been the single best day? Oh, I'd say every day at Sublime is the new best day. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it just reaches new heights. I just, you know, just the complexity just grows and grows and grows. It does not get easier. And so if you love complexity and love a challenge, you know, every day is just going to be better than the last. Mm. <laughs> Has your leadership style changed since you started the company three years ago? For sure. And I think, um, you know, starting out, I, um, 
you know, I've, I've learned a lot of, of management skills and that's not something that you really have to do as, as a creative person or a PhD. So learning how important communication and, and planning and OKRs and all that type of stuff. I'm not naturally into planning. I, I don't derive happiness and joy from planning. I'm more of a chaos Muppet, as people <laughs> would say, but I know that that's so important for for working as a single team to achieve our goals. So I continue to get better with the help of my friends on the management front. Hmm. Can you speak to your experience being a white woman leading a climate tech company in an industry that is is majority white and majority male? Yeah, the industry, the construction industry is seen as male-dominated, and it's certainly is um, in some respects, but from in the cement world, there's several really prominent female scientists that are just world-class, and some of them are advisors to Sublime. Um, and also, you know, our customers are are really good people. It's um, it's an indus- it's like a, a very grassroots industry. Businesses are often passed from father to son. People wake up very early. They work really hard. They don't leave until the job is done. And they have a lot of integrity and that comes through. And I have never been made to feel like an outsider. Looking ahead, what will the future of industrial decarbonization look like in a decade? Oh, I'm so excited for that. I think... What will industrial decarbonization look like? I don't know. By 2030, which is a little less than a decade, you know, we're we're (laughs) supposed to be at 50% carbon reduction. I don't think we'll get there. I'm an an optimist, but even that one feels like a bit of a stretch to me. But I do think it's going to precipitate very quickly. I am so energized by all the technologies being developed and some of the people doing stuff who've been on your podcast. We've got some of the smartest people in the world um, working on this. And, you know, especially because it's mission motivated, like we're not doing this to get rich, although I do think getting rich is a product of of success. But I just think we have, you know, the best people working harder on this. And I just can't wait to see where this takes us. And if Sublime Systems succeeds, what does the company look like in a decade? Oh, if if we succeed in a decade, we will be operating not just one million ton per year plant, but but multiple of them. And we will, you know, carbon emissions is a global problem. Most of the greenfield cement plants in the future will be built in, in India and Africa. And so, you know, the foolish version of ourselves accomplishing our mission is having multiple cement plants by 2030 in, in many different countries. Love it. We are going to close with our high voltage round. These are quick questions, quick answers, quick meaning like a couple words or a short sentence. The first question is, Leia, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I like being human. So if it (laughs) couldn't be that, it would probably be a bonobo. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I think you are our first one. It takes bonobo. Um, Tell me why. Uh, Well, they're like humans, but I think, you know, there's of our monkey cousins, I think they're the gentlest and they have the most mm-hmm. fun in life. So <laughs> well said, well said. What inspires you? The great outdoors, but also just the frontier of science. I think there's so much that's just rippling under the surface that we don't know. Um, and that really motivates me. I want to know everything about it. <laughs> if you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? <sighs> that is so hard because I'm so happy and I can't imagine myself being happy <laughs> doing anything else. But if it was something else, it would have to be for a cause. I really, um, 
I like to fight. I like to work. I like to drain myself. <laughs> and I, um, I feel very protective of, of people and things. And so I'd be working really hard on something, another mission. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? For sure, my master's supervisor that made chemistry cool again, and t- definitely my PhD supervisor as well. So Professor Mark Oberbach and Professor Jeff Don. Love it. Tell me about a specific time that you failed. <laughs> I feel constantly, <laughs> daily basis. And as someone who takes a lot of risks, um, I say like you win some, you lose some. Um, yeah, fail often. Maybe a specific time. I say I regret every email that I write after 11 p.m. Like, you should just go to bed. Like, just don't, <laughs> don't do it. It's probably very, very regrettable. <laughs> <laughs> um, what lesson has taken the longest to learn? Uh, going with your gut. I think, you know, I just spoke about, like, not being able to, to choose a major. And I think I, you know, you just go with what feels right. And I think you have to get older and, and be through a couple <laughs> couple failures of picking wrong, right? Like maybe picking with your head until you trust that, you know, you've got some instincts in there that maybe you can't quite articulate, but you should trust them. Totally agree. What's the best investment you've ever made? Between my master's and my PhD, I spent what was my life savings at the time on a uh, a cycling trip from Cairo to Cape Town. So it was four months, wow. 12,000 kilometers, so roughly 100 kilometers a day. And we inched our way through. Um, that year, it didn't start in Cairo because of the Arab Spring. So we started in Sudan and went up to the Egyptian border and went back down, spent, did a loop in Ethiopia. And that was awesome. Um, I don't think I would be a truly happy person if I hadn't just, like, just gone off the beaten path so so decisively like that and just saw a lot of the world and pushed my limits physically and emotionally and met a lot of great friends and got really fit. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. I can't believe I didn't know about this. Um, when, when was this in your life? Like, where does this fit into your story? Yeah, that was 2014. So I just finished my master's and I'd done a a, an internship at a battery company, which I, I didn't quite enjoy. And so I'd made some money and I knew that I'd be going back to Nova Scotia to do a PhD with Jeff Don because he was very famous. And, you know, I decided after working without a PhD, it's like, no, I think I need that PhD to get to the mm-hmm. more interesting level in a career. But I didn't want to just, you know, four years when you're 24 feels like eternity. So, um, I'd read about this trip in in a newspaper article. It's a Canadian group called Tour d'Afrique. And, you know, I was unhappy and I looked at my bank account and then I looked at the the registration link and it was like about the same number. It's like, okay, (laughs) let's do it. (laughs) And that was a great decision. And it was a very difficult adjustment coming back. And I think the second day back, I started my PhD and, you know, you're indoors all day, which feels very lame. And like you, you know, your <laughs> appetite is still on fire because you're used to like eating a lot and burning a lot of calories. But instead you have to like sit indoors and like get book smart again. And so that was a very tough transition, but I, I made it through in the end. <laughs> mm, what an amazing experience. 
Um, what is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I used to think that you could um, solve climate change by having a really earthy lifestyle. And I certainly had a very earthy lifestyle, perhaps at the same time that I took that trip. You know, very low carbon life, like definitely like cycle commuter and composting and like doing all those things to to be as, as earthy as possible. And I never really understood why other people weren't doing it. And, you know, you try to, and then you just realize that, you know, you can't just I mean, it's not possible for, for everybody to change. Maybe they should, but it's not a perfect world. So you have to find another way to decarbonize. And that's when I really started leaning into, like, invention and innovation. And, like, there's, you know, if you work hard enough, there is a smarter way to, like, get, you know, you can't depend on consumers to to make an impact. It, that impact is going to have to come from a number of different ways. So I no longer believe that consumers have the power to reduce emissions alone. Mm, agreed. When are you your best self? Uh, I enjoy that fine line between pressure and stress. I think I can operate there. I think I gravitate to there and I create <laughs> I create that that condition around me and I, I think I, I, I seek it out. Um, and I, I enjoy like the deep work and a little bit of pressure to just create things. Hmm. What is your worst trait? Uh, <laughs> I have a lot, um, and I'm working on on most of them. I, I do think that everybody's a double-edged sword, so I am very proactive. Um, I don't really hesitate before diving right in, and that results in, you know, um, you know, maybe I shouldn't dive in. <laughs> Sometimes maybe I should exercise a little bit more restraint. And so, yeah, working on on being a, a single-edged sword. Mm. <laughs> Although it is that trait that gave you the confidence to dive in when this was totally unknown. And so I agree with the <laughs> double-edged sword there. Um, if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? I'm very disturbed by by the violence in the world especially, you know, Russia and Ukraine, but also, you know, what's going on in the Middle East and um, in China against Muslims there. And I think that's absolutely horrible. I don't understand why humans kill each other. Um, I also don't understand why humans kill animals. I think violence is perhaps necessary, but only as a very last resort. And so I, yeah, just humans hurting each other and hurting animals. That's the one thing I would stop. Absolutely. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Oh, uh, if there's a person listening to this that wants to be a scientist or wants to be an entrepreneur or, or have a big impact somehow and they listen to this and they find me relatable or they think they're smarter than me or whatever. They just listen to this and they're like, wow, if she can do it, then I can do it too. And then they go on to do it. That would that would be the reason why I'm doing this podcast. Hmm. What is your best quality? Um, probably being proactive and an optimist and um, moving on really quickly from painful stuff. And that I think that makes me really relentless and resilient. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? 
there's a thousand ways to die, but I would say product <laughs> market fit. If you really knew me, you would know. If you really knew me, you would know probably that I'm not very materialistic and I retain that very mm. earthy, <laughs> earthy side of me for myself, <laughs> although I don't expect others mm. to do it. Mm-hmm. Success is? Success is being happy and satisfied with what you have. Mm. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have? If I could have done one thing differently, I would have taken better care of my body in the past three years that I've been an entrepreneur. Mm. How are you doing that now? Uh, exercising. So <laughs> getting back into a fitness routine and just eating better than like apples and bananas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if that's your unhealthy choice, you're doing pretty good. Oh, no, good. I, that's, yeah, and cake. You know, every cookie that comes your way and stuff like that. <laughs> Pizza. <laughs> if the world knew me for one thing, it would be? If the world knew me for one thing, it would be part of a really high-impact team that made a difference to, to climate change and had that swift and massive impact. I'm most proud of? I am most proud of my team. I just love my colleagues and I'm just flattered that they spend time with me. And <laughs> Last question to build a successful startup, what it takes is? To build a successful startup, what it takes is just resiliency and relentlessness. And I would also add to that, I think a startup, if you're going to make one, it has to be big enough for you to be really excited about it because it's very hard. So pick something big enough to really matter um, and then have your eyes wide open to everything that could go wrong and don't fill yourself with hubris. So for me, I like to have that very spicy balance between excitement and ambition and wow, wouldn't that be amazing? And then also just... It, it has to have an element of danger and risk and you have to have, have your eyes wide open to that. And I think to keep that in balance and just be really relentlessly driving towards success with all of that in mind. What a way to end, Leah Ellis. It's been <laughs> such a pleasure having you on the show and learning more about you and your background and what you're building. And I'm so excited for everything you'll do in the world. Thanks, Emily. Appreciate it. Leah Ellis is the CEO and co-founder of Sublime Systems. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I'd also like to thank What It Takes listener Shan Yen, who said, I absolutely love the show and look forward to new episodes every time they come out. Great insights into the process of starting and running a climate tech company. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures with support from PostScript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. 
Whether you're a first-time or long-time listener, you can support the show by giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate all of them, and we read some of them on the show. And if you have a friend or colleague who you think might like this episode, please send them the link. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Ann Bailey, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand is our engineer. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>